The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 154, the first episode of season nine of the MJ cast. I cannot believe we are here nearly a decade into this amazing project. My name is Elise Capron. I am your co-host today, signing in from Studio San Diego. And today I'm joined by the one and only Jamin Bull, my co-host for this episode. Jamin, of course, co-founder of the show, the brain, the heart of this entire operation. Jamin, you keep us all going and we love you so much. How are you doing at the dawn of season nine of the MJ cast? Oh, Elise, I'm uh, blushing over here. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing really well. It's, it's pretty hot here today, though, in Studio Brisbane, but I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Uh, it, it's really, really season nine, and I just I can't believe it, it's, we're here. It's crazy. It's, it's been nine years or something at this point. So, yeah, I'm really excited to get into this season, and, and I'm hoping for it to be even better than any other season we've done before. Absolutely. We've got a lot of really exciting stuff to come, and really, really season nine will give you a little hint of someone I'm about to introduce in just a moment. But first, um, we have a friend of the show and someone who's becoming a very regular guest on the show, Sean Shackelford. He is with us today. And Sean listeners will recognize from a lot of great episodes at this point. Recently, Sean was on our Thriller 40 episode, which was right at the end of season eight. Also the Invincible 20 roundtable. Sean, we so appreciate your longtime fandom, your insights, the way you just so beautifully articulate everything you say. Thank you for joining us today. And how are you doing? Thank you very much. And I am excited for this particular episode. Um, I always get excited when I get a phone call or get a text from you guys wanting me to be on the show. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited. And yeah, my wife is excited. Um, she she texts me from work today and oh, so telling great. me good luck. Um, and she can't wait to hear the show. That's great. (laughs) And then we have our special guest for today. He has been on the show before. We have really, really Brad Sunberg. Um, Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I am uh, thrilled and honored to be back with you guys and happy anniversary. Is it happy anniversary? Happy birthday. Congratulations. It's an absolute uh, honor to be back with you. And I'm looking forward to settling in for a little conversation. Absolutely. Well, Brad, you go way back with the MJ cast. So Brad, of course, all listeners will know, worked in the studio with Michael Jackson for many years, has just so many great stories. Brad was one of our very first special guests back on the MJ cast episode 15, which was in 2015, the first year of our show. So he goes way back to the origins of the podcast. And if you haven't heard that episode, please go check it out. It's just full of great stories. Brad is an amazing storyteller. I'm sure 
many of our listeners follow you, Brad, on social media. You share tons of great stuff there. And also, you were on our show almost exactly a year ago for our reflection on John Barnes Roundtable, which was, uh, it's one of my favorite episodes. It was so incredible and moving. And on that episode, we had Brad Buxer and Matt Forger, and Jamin was on the show as well. And Brad, you know, thank you again, because you really were instrumental in making that episode happen, bringing everybody together. And it was just an incredible discussion. And I do want to say coincidentally also that I believe today's recording date, March 18th, I think is John's what would have been his birthday. So Hmm. we are thinking of you, John. We love you. Check out that roundtable and also our uh, special with John Barnes, two great episodes. Thank you. It's very, very kind. And uh, thank you for the, the kind introduction. Yeah. Great. So we just want to jump right into it. And again, so happy to have you back, Brad. So, you know, with our own anniversary here and coming up, we thought it would be a really important and interesting time to circle back to you, Brad, and to have a chat about you celebrating 10 years of In the Studio with Michael Jackson. Now, listeners will probably know, um, or maybe have even attended your seminars. They're, They're pretty fantastic. And you've done a lot of them at this point. Your events have evolved a lot. They've happened literally all around the world. You've had amazing guests. There have been tons of incredible moments. We also at this particular time, of course, can't ignore that you recently did go through a pretty shocking event when your material was stolen during a seminar. So there have been a lot of highs and a few lows in there. Lots of ups and downs. Yes. Some ups and downs. Yes. Um, Like for all of us, right? Right. (laughs) And uh, so with all that in mind, we thought this would be a good time to get back together with you as a show of support and to do just a little catch up on all things in studio with MJ 10 years in. Ultimately, after all, you really have created a space for yourself in the fan community, Brad, and you also have been an integral part of helping to shape the fan community's understanding of MJ's legacy in a world without the king of pop. So, you know, um, again, thank you for all you are doing. And I wanted to start first with just a little personal note, if I may, that my personal experience with your seminars actually goes back to June of 2017. So I've been going to your seminars for quite a while. At that time, I didn't really know what they were. I had actually, I believe I had heard about it on the MJ cast when I was still just a listener of the show. And I just went to one day. (laughs) Do we get any commission for that, Brad? Or what's the deal? It's it's in the mail. It's in the mail. Uh, That was that was how I discovered, and I think how a lot of other people probably did too. But um, but I thought, what is this thing? It just sounds so great. So I went to one day in LA. I didn't know much about it, but I very quickly realized how special it was, and I was back soon to do your full weekend events in LA. After that, so it's been a huge part of my life over the last six years, uh, and it's just really special to me. So again, thank you so much for that. Do you remember what studio we were at in 2017? I could probably look it up. I don't remember offhand, but I know I still have it in my Google calendar, so I can look it up (laughs) later. I mean, it's the funniest thing because LA is almost a game of uh, cat and mouse. Um, We'll we'll be at a studio and we like it one year and then they go out of business or Mm -hmm. they triple the price or so it's so funny. LA and New York are, those are the two that we, we, tend to migrate around and there's no real reason behind it other than, uh, you know, unfortunately a lot of studios are going out of business 
and uh, and then there's economics that come into play, but uh, but that th- those are all very humbling words. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, and uh, and I'm thrilled to be back. And by the way, we're actually coming up on year eleven. If you oh can my gosh. stand wow. it, um, by my scribbly notes here, uh, we're looking at yeah June twenty third, twenty twelve was really our first event. So, yes, yeah, so this will be we'll, we'll be 11 years. Uh, I'll be in L.A. on June 23rd this year. So maybe we'll have a little piece of cake or something. Who knows? <laughs> that would be awesome. I can tell you that first year I went, it was in a really fancy studio. It was like a movie theater almost. It was very nice. Oh, you know where it was? I think it was at SAE at the old Alfred Hitchcock Theater. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, I yeah. love – that was one of my favorite venues – uh, I work with SAE, forgive me, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but uh, it's a recording school based in Australia of all places. Mm-hmm. They have schools all through Europe and they have a handful of schools in the US and I have a great relationship with them. And they they had this gorgeous studio in LA featuring the Alfred Hitchcock Theater. And uh, we were there once and then they went out of business. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just like, this is the story of my life. That really was one of my favorite venues. So I'm glad you got to see that. It was beautiful. Yeah. Good. It's really nice. But but then again, some of my favorite guests have been like in the, what seem kind of like little dinky recording studios where the most magical things happen. So you just never know, right? <laughs> right. Right. Well, okay. So here's another one for you. We had an amazing studio booked in L.A. for this summer. And, I mean, I had it locked in, in writing, and they've they've gone out of business. Oh. And it's a studio where Michael used to work, mm. and uh, it would have been just pure magic. I don't want to say too much, so I'm not trying to be a tease, but I am kind of working on a backup plan. But, yeah, it was, it was so the, – these gorgeous, these grand old studios are uh, – they're having a tough fight right now mm-hmm. and it, it's a different world. It's a different music industry and the old days of studios commanding, you know, four or $5,000 a day and record companies just happily paying. It just doesn't exist anymore. And the, these guys are, they're just, they're struggling mm-hmm. and the home studio market, you know, and, and we all benefit from home studios, but it has definitely taken a toll on, on the grand old studios. Mm-hmm. So, we really do our best to try and find legitimate places. And I was so excited (laughs) (laughs) and uh, hopefully plan B is going to come together, but uh, I'm not quite ready to tell you what plan A was, but uh, it was a pretty, pretty frustrating setback in LA. Mm. But anyway, uh, on we go. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's something to be said too, for a lot of these really nice studios dying out, you know, they, potentially provided experiences, well, that you've told many of these stories in your own seminars that you can't have in a home studio, right? It's just not oh, the same. I, mean, I, I, I could derail the train for two hours and yeah. talk about, you know, the amazing things that happen in a big facility where you've got, uh, and, and I'm just going to make up names, but, you know, you've got U2 working in Studio A and you've got Michael Jackson working in Studio B and, and uh, the Rolling Stones are doing overdubs in Studio C. And there's, there's such a magic chemistry where, you know, musicians roam from room to room and talk with each other and, hey, why don't you sit in on this session? And, you know, do you have any ideas for this song? 
And it's, it's sad because so much of that style of music making is, is unfortunately falling by the wayside. I'm curious, Brad, what you put that down to, because we were actually talking about this in our MJ cast group chat. I think it was just yesterday or the day before, but I interact with a lot of teenagers. I'm a, I'm a school teacher. And so I deal with, you know, hundreds of kids every day. And, uh, I, even I have noticed in the past 10 years, the, like what kids talk about in the classroom in terms of music, I don't hear as many young people today talking about music that they're into that's contemporary, like from now, often what I'm hearing from kids is like music I was enjoying in the nineties or way back. Um, right. it, it, it just feels to me like the industry is suffering in general. Would you agree with that? And if so, what would you put it down to? I'm, I'm going to try so hard not to have my rocking chair start squeaking. That's right. um, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 uh, there's lots of theories, but it, it really did start with Napster. Napster came in and uh, people, you know, I'm in my late 50s and I grew up spending a significant amount of my, my I don't even know where I got the money. I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't steal it, but uh, I'd work at, you know, odd jobs in high school and just go buy albums. And as I got a little bit older, I'd start buying CDs and, uh, and it was just, and you spent the money and I, I'm looking, you know, in the corner of my music room right now and I have just a huge collection of albums and it was a big part of my youth. And unfortunately, uh, Napster came along and the, the world changes, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bitter about it, but over time people began to expect music for free and, uh, and then, you know, now they expect movies for free or, you know, for $9 a month or whatever. And, you know, and, and I'm not, you know, some scholarly expert on this topic, but, uh, you know, the Spotify format, the, uh, uh, Pandora format, I mean, it's, it's micro payments to artists compared to what it used to be. And, uh, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, I can open up my, my Spotify and whatever it is, there's 98 million songs literally at my fingertips, but I don't know what to play. I mean, you can like or dislike, you know, the way that music used to be sold to us, but it was, you know, there, there was a formula and, uh, people that broke through had budgets to make beautiful albums and, uh, and that it really doesn't, um, it, it's just a very different world. So, um, how, you know, and, and in light of that, how can a studio, you know, a studio in Midtown Manhattan or on Sunset Boulevard in LA, um, where they're being offered. And in fact, absolute true story, true story. I just talked to a studio manager in New York yesterday and she told me that there's a, a studio and I'm not going to name it, but it's a, what I would call maybe a world-class studio or one of the grand old studios. And the owner is kind of hanging on week by week. And he's basically saying, I could rent this space out as a, as a yoga studio and make more money. Um, the record companies just don't exist anymore, uh, lining up, you know, with, with checkbooks. So it's, you know, I, I applaud these, these, you know, these beautiful studios that are hanging on, but it's, it's a tough fight. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you as a consumer of music, me, I realize this is just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't actually change anything, but does it matter? So I'll stream 
my share of music, but if I like an, a song, if I like an album, I will really make a point to go purchase the album rather than just keep streaming it. I always do this, even if I still listen to the streaming version. Does that make any difference in the scheme of things? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And any, uh, you know, any band, any artist, you know, yes, they do. They, they love it when you buy, you know, a product. Um, and again, I, I could be calling up charts on my computer right now and I'm not going to, but I mean, it's, you know, when Spotify plays, uh, a song, I'm, I'm literally making, going to make this up, but like by Dan Fogelberg or, you know, you know, kind of a, an, an older artist, um, they're, they're getting, <laughs> they're getting just, you know, a fraction of a cent, uh, for, for that play. Whereas years ago on radio, they were actually getting, you know, significantly more, so yeah, I have another friend who's in a pretty well-known band just out of uh, propriety. I'm not going to say it, but he, you know, they work, man, they get on the bus and they tour and they're, they're not teenagers anymore. And he told me that uh, by the time, you know, the, the touring staff is paid and the venue and the promoter and the insurance and the bus and everything else, I mean, they're making money. They're not going broke. But he goes, at the end of the day, we got to sell merch. And the merch is a significant part of their income at this point. I mean, I just went and saw Greta Van Fleet a few nights ago. And <laughs> I shelled out $40 for, for a T-shirt. But yeah, I mean, any way that a band or an artist can make a little extra income, I'm, I can pretty surely say they're, they're thankful for that. Yeah, well, good to know. Brett, would you, would you liken this to in the fifties and the sixties, when the market was a singles driven market, then transitioned into albums and concept albums in the seventies. Would you say that this transition now that we're in is similar to that? Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, yeah, it's almost like a roller coaster um, where, yeah, in the fifties, sixties and, and, you know, admittedly it's slightly before my time, but yeah, you had, you know, where it's just single, single, single banging them out. And yeah, seventies, I mean, everybody was buying albums and now, Sadly, <laughs> nobody's buying anything, but yeah. And in fact, I don't want to speak for Brad Buxer, but Brad and I have talked about that. Michael really loved that idea of just spitting out a single. I don't mean to be, you know, silly, but, uh, you know, dropping a single every two to three months and really not doing albums anymore. And he, you know, he saw this is where things are going. There's always going to be, you know, Taylor Swift is just, you know, an amazing anomaly. <laughs> and I like Taylor Swift. There's no insult in this at all, but she has a very unique audience and they're going to buy whatever she puts out, but she's a very unique case. Most other artists. Yeah. I, I think trying to get a single out there and, uh, you know, keep touring, keep, uh, keep the public interested. It's, it's, it's more challenging me, you know, than I think it was at least to make, <laughs> to make a good living. Yeah. And, and this is just sad to me, but, uh, man, I want this, I want this episode to be light and happy. I don't want it to be sad. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think I even read that like guitar center, you know, has reported that, you know, guitar sales are down, music lessons are down and it's, it's unfortunate because if kids aren't, you know, if they don't want to be the next Eddie Van Halen, that's that's just unfortunate because there are some really talented kids out there and, and some kids that are making great music. 
Well, I'll do my part because my daughter recently asked me for a guitar. And Yay! So I'm, I'm gonna we'll we'll go over to Guitar Center and we'll see what we can do. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> if I'm really being a, a a good guy, I should say support your local music store over Guitar Center. But uh, but that's I, true. I that, but but I commend the uh, yes, I I commend uh, doing that. I agree. And and I have to say, just on a very silly note, mutually between the four of us, we have a lot of daughters to put out in the world to go be musicians. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I, bring Sean, I think you have three, right? And Brad, yes. you have four. I bring four to the table. Yeah, Jamin has two, and I have one. All wow. girls. All of yes. us. <laughs> one, two, three, and four. That's awesome. They could all join a band together. <laughs> yes, to the Bengals, twenty twenty-three. There you go. <laughs> No, I love that. It's, I mean, it's certainly a changing world, a very different from the world, you know, you were in when working so closely with Michael Jackson, Brad, but, uh, you know, hopefully, ultimately, exciting in its own ways. And I think we have space for more voices than ever. And I hope we'll eventually find some balance there. So it artists can be supported in a world where everything has become content rather rather than music or books or each individual thing, right? It's all content now, which is a little scary, but. And, and to bounce off something that Jamin did say um, about, you know, eighties music. And, and we were, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm older than you guys, but uh, uh, to go through the eighties and the music that we had, and I try so hard not to sound like the old guy, but yeah, I mean, a lot of my daughters absolutely love, my daughters and their friends love 80s music. And they love discovering, you know, Michael and Bon Jovi and Billy Idol. In fact, I've got a, a playlist on my Spotify. It's it's American Top 40 uh, from, I think, from uh, one of the weeks in like 1984. And it's just smash after smash after smash. And you're like, we had so much amazing music at our fingertips and studios were packed out. So yes, I, I, I would love to see a resurgence of some, some great bands and people actually making music together again. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and, and dive into In the Studio with MJ topics. And the vast majority of this will be a celebration of all you've been doing for 10 plus years, Brad. But I, I do want to first address one thing that will be on any fan's mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is. Um, because, of course, you did have something pretty shocking and tragic happen in Brussels on January 27th. This thing that rocked the community. And um, during one of your seminars, of course, your entire laptop and hard drive was stolen. Files were taken, released widely. We can't ignore the fact that this included things like the Master of Chicago 1945, Faces, demos of Keep the Faith, Dangerous, Earth Song, stems of all the iconic MJ songs from Jam to Human Nature and Scream, and much more. Okay, okay, Uh, okay. I get it. I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I know you get it. Um, But can you, Brad, I, I know it's a delicate thing. Can you tell us where things stand now with this incident. And and part of us bringing you here, just so you know, really is a show of support. We are all really angry on your behalf and anything you're willing to, um, you know, dive into on this topic, we would so appreciate. And I know all the fans would appreciate. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and you and I have talked at least, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's a topic that, uh, that, that I can't avoid, 
Yeah, what happened on that day was uh, was uh, remarkably frustrating. Um, I've played it in my head, you know, ten thousand times, and you kind of go through the the whole litany of I should have done this, I should have done this. Um, you know, in in terms of you know how I'm doing, not that anybody's you know not that that really matters. It's, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been very frustrating. Um, you know, you, you read about, you know, processing something like this and you kind of go through the, you know, the anger and the, the different stages. And, uh, so, you know, in, in a sense it's, yeah, it's been, it's been quite frustrating. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of stuff that, I, that I'm probably not going to say, but, uh, you know, we, we have been working with law enforcement and again, I'm going to, proceed very cautiously, but, uh, I have been in contact with the estate. They reached out to me and, uh, they have been, I'll say very, uh, sympathetic and even supportive, which, um, which meant a lot. They knew that I didn't do any of this intentionally. And it was, it was a straight up theft. It was a crime that, that occurred. And, uh, and I know it sounds strange, but you know, it just so happens that my my home movies happen to can't contain a lot of Michael Jackson, and it would be as if somebody you know broke into someone else's house and stole their home movies and just arbitrarily posted them online. So you know, I mean, it's it's things you know where Michael's talking to me. There's a voicemail. I mean. You know, it's still it's still very raw for me because I even as you were listing off the, <laughs> the names of uh, things that have been uh, stolen, I just don't look. Um, I know that sounds not I hope not cowardly, but but I, I can't dwell on it. So I I do know what was taken, and uh, and there's the old adage: it could have been worse. What he what he took, and we certainly know who he is, and uh, we have a a lot of info on him. What he took was just, it was my show. I mean, it was, uh, the, the raw material, uh, from the show. So in a sense, I don't know, maybe it's not the right analogy, but, uh, it's almost like having a movie script, but not the movie, if that makes sense. It, it was the behind the scenes stuff that we use to help bring the movie to life. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been challenging. Um, we have been, I'm repeating myself, but yes, we have been, uh, working with authorities. Um, I've taken, you know, it's a very strange thing to see, you know, memes made about, <laughs> about me. <laughs> um, some of them violent, you know, some of them, you know, we've got to, uh, inflict more harm to Brad to, uh, get more stuff and, uh, we've got to hurt these other people. And I know that it's, you know, it's little keyboard warriors, you know, sitting behind a computer being tough, but I still scratch my head and go, good grief. I, I just tell some stories about a friend of mine and all of a sudden I'm th at the center of all this. So having said that, there's also been just a waterfall of support and, uh, and every people have written me notes and comments and things like that of a positive nature even if I didn't respond to everyone, I, I did read everyone and they meant a lot. So we, you know, we did take some time off. We uh, canceled a couple uh, scheduled events and uh, 
issued full refunds. And we've, uh, I, I just needed some time and I needed a little bit of time to figure out, do I want to keep doing this? You know, who, who do I trust? Who do I not trust? And yeah, it's weird, man. It's, I've never really been a victim of a, of a crime before. And it's, it's crazy. The, the roller coaster of emotions and, uh, my daughter Maddie does uh, almost all of my editing and, and a lot of my social media, and uh, she's kind of become a right hand part of the team. And we have uh, we're we're in the process of rebuilding the show. I hate to call it a show, but that's just what I'll call it. And and it was time anyway. It was time for a refresh, and uh, we we do have you know quite a bit of material that was not um, on that uh, computer that was stolen. But we're we're coming back. I mean, we are coming back. We'll be in Atlanta in late April. On a personal note, I mean, we've again. I don't want to say too much, but but even around my house, we've uh, increased. We we've just tried to prevent any nonsense. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate the kind words. It has been been a bit of a roller coaster. This is going to sound so. I hope this is understood the way I intend it to be understood, but in a weird way going through this and, you know, kind of being, you know, being the butt of jokes or whatever in in a weird way, it was just like a 0.0000001% of what Michael went through. And I hope that's not misunderstood. It it, it was just kind of a, it, you know, it sucks. It, it, It sucks to be, kind of mocked and, uh, and, you know, this is what you get, blah, blah, blah. Even tonight, this afternoon, as I was getting ready to do this, and this is just hear me out. Um, I was kind of prepping my, my music room and getting ready to talk to you guys and what rolls out of my bag, but a cherry chapstick. Mm. And I don't want to give it away, but there's a really special connection that I have with uh, cherry chapstick and, and just a conversation I had with Michael and it's weird and don't, I'm not a mystical spooky kind of guy. I'm actually a, a rock solid Christian, but I do appreciate little reminders that I worked with an amazing guy and uh, I love telling these stories and I've decided that, yeah, we made a mistake. I, I got a little too trusting and, uh, and I got bit, but I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. We are coming back full force. I love the people that I've met. I love the opportunities that I've been given. And uh, we have no intention whatsoever to go away. Um, Brad, thanks for for that detail and explanation. That really puts a lot of perspective and context on things. I I, um, am curious about the whole, this individual who did this terrible crime, which is inexcusable, whatever he did, jumping out the window with the laptop or whatever. I mean- I don't know if I'd call it a rumor, but there is a conversation in the fan community around how whoever this person is, and I don't need to know his name, has been to your seminars before and allegedly has already recorded or bootlegged material that you've played, for example, Picaro's songs, and uh, has already leaked them out. You know, I mean, this isn't, obviously, this is the first 
right. major significant theft and and hopefully the only and, and last one. But previously, there has been material that's been sadly recorded and bootlegged from your your seminars. So is it the case that this guy has done it before through through recording stuff and getting it out? Do you know that? Well, you're you're fifty percent right. Um, he was actually at uh, Reese's event in Paris in the fall, I believe it was, and I don't think he's been to one of mine. I, I could be wrong. Okay, but yeah, he did successfully do some recording at uh, Brees's event. And you obviously didn't know that at the time that he came into to yours. I'm guessing. Um, I knew that that Brees got hit. I just didn't know that uh, the same guy was coming to my event. So so when in the past songs have been bootlegs, like however they do it, how do these people do it? Do they sneak in with like, like do they somehow get their phone in and put voice memos on? I don't know. Like when that happens, what goes through your head? Is it like, oh my God, the risk is too great now or? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we, you know, we, we do the best we can with security and unfortunately that is going to increase pretty significantly in upcoming events, I'm a trusting guy. I mean, I, you know, it's hard for me to look at somebody and question their, their, uh, their motives. I, I'm a very open, trusting, you know, my, my wife has told me for years, I'm too trusting. And this is, you know, we, we've had a couple instances where people have, oh, we had something in Germany and I, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much, but a few years ago, somebody uh, snuck a little recorder in and we caught him and it was really, really messy. But yeah, I mean, somebody might sneak a phone in. In terms of, you know, I, I, I just try to respect the work and it's, my events have never been about, you know, the secret society of hearing, you know, unreleased songs. I, I you know, I play very little how, how do I say it? I mean, what I prefer is to play some early versions of songs and let people hear how how they evolve, and uh, and occasionally, you know, we would surprise them with with a little little something they may may not have heard before. Some of that is going to change, but I think it's interesting and it's useful for what I do for people to hear how songs do evolve yeah. and to hear an early version versus a uh, a final version. But that's never been the the main catalyst of my events. I, I like to take people into a studio or into a music facility and build a community and really take them on a ride and uh, share these stories. And uh, And the, the music and videos are are part of that, but without the context of the, the backstory and how this whole thing came about, to me, it's, it, it's a, a, a little bit cold. Yeah, definitely. And and we've got to say, I mean, it's not just your seminars that this has happened at before. Um, famously, I think, I can't remember his name, but there was a studio engineer or producer or somebody, um, somebody Russo went and spoke at Kingvention one year and decided to play Ghost of Another Lover. Right. And somebody recorded that and the whole thing came out in bootleg and I just I, I wrote a an op-ed piece on it on the mjcast.com called Thoughts on Leaks. And I just it's it's a bit it is horrible when it happens. Some fans are really into it. Doesn't matter the right. quality if it's bootleg or not. They're like, yeah, we'll get our hands on whatever we can. But whenever I, I don't listen to it when it happens because for me it's like, well, you know, that could have come out on an anniversary edition of an album or it 
could have been one day an asset um, that Michael's beneficiaries could have really used or something like that. So I don't support it when it happens at all. I just wondered how how heavily that may play on your mind as well. When people just take it into their own hands like that, it's like, I don't know the value of this material, but it's potentially quite a lot if you think of it in a way where, all right, well, how many available tracks are there that could come out one day on a dangerous reissue, for example? And then once they start leaking out as bootlegs, it's like, <laughs> how many are there left? <laughs> right. And, and by the way, Brees uh, has reached out to me after the Brussels incident and uh and I, I know Bryce. He, he's, I know I'm, I'm saying his name two different ways, but uh, he, he is a good guy. And I do appreciate him, uh, him reaching out. And uh, in, in no small way, he's actually helping me out quite a bit behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I know he was, he was so devastated by the leak that happened at his own event. So right. he is full of heart. I'm glad, he, I'm glad you guys are coordinating. Yes. Yeah. So obviously there's a range of other seminars that have sort of cropped up since you started your work years ago. We've got Kingvention in England now and MJ Music Day in France. Do you feel any sense of competition or like a competitive nature with the other groups that are popping up as well? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, MJ Music Day. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I don't know. I don't know. Was it, you know, flattery is the best form of, uh, uh, compliment or whatever it is. Um, I have tried to reach out to Pez at Kingvention, but what he and I do are really to, and, and we did, we did have a really nice conversation, but uh, what he and I do are two pretty different things. And, uh, and same with, with Brees at the MJ music day. And, and again, please don't take this as, as negative at all. Um, I, I think the more that people can learn about Michael and the uh, remarkable talent that he had, the better. I think with my event, we we tend to maybe sink in a little bit deeper. Um, maybe my events, <laughs> my 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 wife would say my events are too long, but I really do like to take people on a pretty significant ride if possible. Whereas I think Kingvention and the MJ Music Day, I think it's a little more, you know, an hour or two of this and an hour or two of that, and uh, that's just never really been my approach. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to think that we complement each other. And I'm, I, I know Kingvention, they've, they've, uh, they've interviewed some really great people that, uh, the, that I think, you know, I, I do have respect for both of them. I, I really do. There was another one a long time ago and it's long since gone. Um, no, I don't want to say a whole lot about it, but, uh, it, it was definitely pretty, pretty cheesy and not very well produced. And, uh, and as long as people are really putting their best foot forward and producing a, a really good event and, you know, letting people know that, hey, this is worthwhile and you really are going to hear some insights about Michael. Yes, I do think that it's healthy. And, and if I could add, Jamin, I think a lot in the a lot of people in the fan community are, you know, they have this love-hate relationship with the estate. And so they're always clamoring for more MJ material. And so that's the justification that they use for supporting this but I agree with you. I don't support it. But Brad, I was just wondering, you know, what is your take on in terms of fans wanting this because they don't feel like they're getting enough? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a tough one. I do understand the insatiable hunger of more, more, more. At the same time, I, I balance that with, I'm, 
I'm using a couple of these, you know, early versions to, you know, to kind of take people on a ride. I'm, I'm not selling them in the back alley. I'm not capitalizing on, on, uh, the content specifically. It's more, I'm using it as a tool to, uh, you know, let people experience what it was like to work with Michael. Yeah. In terms of, you know, under understanding the fan community, yeah, it, it, it's tough because on the one, yes, I do realize there are people that, uh, probably can't afford, or I'm, I'm not near a, a, a venue where, where, you know, they might be able to experience this, but again, you're taking it so out of context just to, you know, stare at a video where, you know, a video that I shot with, you know, with, with Michael's full knowledge and, and yet with, without the backstory of what it is, it, to me, it, it just seems, it just seems very empty. So, Brad, you mentioned the estate has reached out to you. What has been your relationship with the MJ estate even before this happened? It's a good question. I'm going to tread very lightly, but uh, my relationship with the estate has been, I mean, they're the big dog and I have nothing but respect for them. And I do the best I can to uh, provide MJ fans with a really unique experience and they uh, they have been, I'll say, accepting, and uh, they they know that I was with Michael for about eighteen years. I probably bring some insights that you know that everyone has their own position, but um, I, I had a really unique uh, friendship and working relationship with Michael. For the most part, the estate has been very hands off. And I, and I appreciate that. I mean, I've, I, I like to think I've had a good work, working relationship with them, which is mostly hands off. And, and by extension, have you had much relationship with the family, um, the brothers, the sisters? I know Taj has attended one of your uh, events, but uh, what's your relationship like with the family? Um, have they reached out to you? Uh, are they supportive? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a, it's a good question because and I'm going to say this very carefully, but, but when I was with Michael, I was with Michael and I did work with Taj and, and 3T a little bit on a couple songs, but for the most part, I was with Michael. Uh, Janet came in and did Scream with us, but there's Michael and then there's the Jacksons and, and don't read anything into that, but I was part of Michael's camp and the two really didn't, professionally cross over very much. So, I mean, I've, I mean, I've met Tito and, and obviously, obviously I've spent some good time with Taj, but I was never close to the family. I was always working with Michael. So subsequently, uh, when, (laughs) when Elise and I were at the, uh, uh, the Thriller 40 party last, uh, last October, I, I did get to spend, uh, some really nice time with Prince and had a really nice conversation with him. And he was extremely, uh, what word should I use? Gra- I don't know if I'd say grateful, but, but yeah, I might say grateful of the time that we spent and he knows how much I loved his dad. So yeah, I treat the estate and the family with tremendous respect. I think especially if the estate 
are supportive and behind you and, and all of that kind of thing. I, I think it can be a really special thing. For for example, I'm a, a big fan of the uh, Japanese animation company Studio Ghibli. I don't know if you know about much of their work, but they have a museum in Japan where if you go there, it's the only place in the world that you can see these certain short films that they've made, not not their feature films, but just these really cute little short films that you can't see anywhere else in the world. And and I like the idea that like, you know, whether it's you or the estate working with you or whatever, that there's like a, a place, a point in time kind of place, not YouTube, not somewhere else, where if you go there, you might hear this thing, this, you know, special thing that nobody else has heard. I think I think it's really cool, especially if the estate and the family are behind that. I mean, there's a song that, you know, unfortunately uh, was uh, was stolen, for lack of a better word, called Faces. Faces is a very unfinished work, but it's also a moment in time. And there's a whole backstory about how that came about and uh, Matt Forger being scheduled, you know, for a trip to South Africa and who was really supposed to be involved in that song. And in the context of a story, it, it makes sense to then, you know, hear part of that song. And unfortunately, when it just gets thrown out there, you know, here, listen to this, it doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't quite have the same impact as uh, being a part of a story or the conclusion of a story. Mm. So that, that part of it, uh, we've already touched on this, but that part of it has been, uh, has been somewhat frustrating. Well, um, Brad, thank you for going into that as deeply as you did. I know it's a raw subject. I want you to know as well, we really sympathize with you. And I am so deeply sorry. I had heard and hearing you say it again now that you're getting like violent messages is just, I know it's the world we're in these days where people just say whatever they want, but it's still really shocking and awful. And I'm sorry that you've had to endure that. No, I appreciate it. And and like I said, I really am a pretty low-key trusting guy. And I I do think that, you know, a 14-year-old behind the keyboard who wants to sound tough, and this was not a 14-year-old that committed the crime, by the way, but but I think people kind of, you know, pile on and, uh, yeah, do this, do this. And uh, so, yeah, there's been just some strange memes and posters and comments, but uh but yeah, you rise above it, dust yourself off, and um, I'll tell you one thing. My favorite thing, not my favorite thing in the world, but when I finish an event, it's exhausting. And our, our events, they just, they, I give really all that I can and I just pour myself into these weekends. And then I get on the flight and I fly home and I have my guest book. And one of my favorite things to do is I have probably six or seven guest books now that are filled up and I read my guest book from that event. And, uh, and I remember the faces and the comments mean so much to me and to my friends in Brussels, please, please don't be, please don't be offended, but I can't read the Brussels one yet. It's been sitting on my, uh, on my dresser, uh, since I got home and I'm just, I'm not quite ready. And I know they're going to be just sweet, kind, wonderful comments, but uh, yeah, it's been very strange. It's been it's been a very uh, unexpected turn of events. 
but we're getting back on the horse and uh, I love doing these. So we are going to continue to do them. Brad, I don't think any of uh, any of uh, your fans or the fans of the your seminars will be upset if you confiscate phones and uh, recording devices in future uh, events. Oh, we do all. We've done that for ten years. <laughs> yeah, I've always found your security to be pretty tight, but I'm also a trusting person who follows the rules. So, you know, it's hard to know what somebody who's scheming is going to do. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it happened and. And so we learn from it. We dust ourselves off and uh, I move on. And before we totally move on, I just want to bring back a, one fun comment is, Brad, I saw you at the incredible Thriller Night Party. And I just have to say your suit at that party was <laughs> so cool. Can you just speak for a moment about that? So one of my best friends in the world is Jared Bradshaw. And uh, Jared is a Broadway actor. Uh, he and his amazing wife, Lindsay, uh, moved down into my neighborhood in Orlando during the pandemic. And Jared, Jared is just a crazy MJ fan and one of the sweetest guys on the planet. And so he came up. I, I got the invite to uh, go to the party. And I don't want to make this too long, but I asked Matt. I first asked my wife, Debbie, if she wanted to go. And she's like, this is your thing, not mine. And then I asked Maddie, my daughter, if she wanted to go. And she said, I think you should bring Jared. And so Jared and I went and he had this crazy idea. Maybe I'll throw it on my Facebook page again, but uh, a photo of it. But he, he did a suit where he was the finished product. He was all these album covers and glossy photos. <laughs> and it was just a remarkable suit that he made. And then I was, so he was post-production and I was pre-production. My <laughs> suit was uh, cassette tapes and dat tapes, you know, production reels, track sheets of stuff that we'd been working on during Bad, Dangerous, and History. So, yeah, so the juxtaposition of the two of us, it was, it was pretty funny. And it, it was just, it was a fun, fun party. It was such a fun party. And yeah, the two of you were quite the pair. I was also following him around taking photos of his suit because it was so <laughs> great. Um, but yeah, you should share that post again and we'll, we'll share it on our social media too, if we're able to, because it was, it was great. <laughs> I'll do it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, Brad, thank you for going so deeply into that again. It's, I know it's a raw subject and just really do appreciate you addressing it. Um, I know you were a bit worried to do so, but we appreciate it. And I know all our listeners too will value what you had to say. So, and we're looking forward to future events this year. I know you've already announced a couple dates with more to come um, and we'll talk all about that. But I guess to kind of go back to our real focus of the chat, you know, looking at a decade plus of In the Studio with MJ. Um, first of all, I would encourage listeners to go check out episode 15 if you have not, because that's where we really talk about the origins of the seminar and you can hear about all that good stuff. But we wanted to chat about some of the highlights of this past decade um, and how the show has evolved and grown and how your perspective has changed over the years too. So, you know, you went, I believe you started in 2000. 12 in Paris, right? And I think you had 10 people at that first event. Um, can you tell us how, where some of your biggest audiences have been over the years? Sure. Yeah. That, that first event in Paris, it, it's just, it's such a, a sweet memory because I met five or six of my 
who would become very close friends of mine over time, uh, we were all having dinner at Bruce Swedeen's house in Ocala, Florida. And I didn't know these guys from anywhere. And they wanted Bruce to come to Paris and tell some stories. And uh, Bruce was like, you know, Bruce called me Braddy Daddy. He's like, Braddy Daddy is a better <laughs> storyteller than I am. Have him go. And Bruce hated to travel. So that's kind of how it began as I went to Paris and I told some stories and uh, played some music and uh, the whole thing, it, it was amazing. And I'm still friends with, with them and uh, they're just really sweet people. In terms of our biggest event, ironically, the biggest group I've ever talked to was probably in Mexico City. I was down there a few years ago, and uh, it was actually a lecture that I was doing. I was working at, I think we were at the Institute of Technology or something in Mexico City, and uh, I was able to deliver a lecture to, I don't know, 150 students, something like that. You have to understand, I am not a public speaker. It really, you know, you talk stage fright. I suffered from some severe stage fright, and now... Uh, with every event, I, I get so excited and I love talking to groups of people. I'm the person, if there's six people in a room and everybody's swapping stories, I'm terrible at it. I, I don't do well in kind of that who's got the funnier story type thing, but I have fallen in love with kind of the presentation type storytelling. And again, if you would have known me 10, 15 years ago, I was a I was a wreck. My voice was quivering and uh, it just took everything in me to stand up and, and talk to a group. And yeah, now, I mean, I mean, 150 people, I mean, compared to uh, what Michael or Taylor Swift or these people, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a micro drop in a bucket, but still it's so much fun. So I would say up to this point, Mexico city has been my biggest lecture in terms of events Man, some of the ones in LA, we we hit uh, 70, 80 people, something like that, and packed into a little studio. That's really fun. Mm -hmm. And do you have these, when you talk about the largest audiences, do you have like a favorite event you've done or a favorite location where just like the audience was super en extra engaged? I know they're always engaged, but somewhere where just everything hit right. This is where you say Australia, Brad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I never, uh, the whole thing is so unexpectedly fun. Being able to meet people from every walk of life and uh, in, in cities that I never in my life imagined I would visit, it, it, it's hard to pick favorites, but Russia's crazy. And uh, spending time in both St. Petersburg and Moscow, and it's it's so unfortunate you know, what, what their lunatic leader is doing. Unfortunate is not a strong enough word. It's barbaric, but that is not the average Russian person. The fact that they have a lunatic for a leader is, is just, un, is just awful. The, the Russian groups are just crazy. They are so much fun. Spain. I mean, come on, Spanish people are nuts. And, uh, <laughs> and so the, the groups that we have in Madrid, and again, I, I don't want any, I don't want anybody to feel bad, but, uh, every I'm grateful for every event, every ticket, but yeah, in terms of just, uh, enthusiasm, Budapest was, was just beautiful. I mean, we were packed into a little studio and they were just 
out of their minds excited. And uh, it, it's it's an amazing experience to to meet these people and and present an event that they enjoy so much. Are there cities um, that you haven't been to that you really want to get to? I know you and I. Oh man, you and I started back in 2019 trying to get you to Detroit, and we're still going to get you to Detroit. I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> I promise. And just a little backstory, uh, we started in 2019 um, and we were trying to go to the Motown Museum, but now they're under some major renovations. And so hmm. um, it was hit and miss uh, for a little while and pandemic hit, so things kind of fell off. But um, we're definitely going to get you back to Detroit. But back to my question, um, are there cities that you really want to get to? Um, I mean, yeah, yes, Detroit is is certainly on my radar I would love to go deeper into Asia, and uh, I've got people that want us to come to South Korea. Um, I, I've got some people in uh, Israel. I know that's not Asia, but um, we, we'd love to get to Israel at some point. I've joked about it several times, but I'd love to do Iceland. And I've, I've been to Iceland as a tourist, and it's just, it's such a remarkable place. So Reykjavik is kind of on my uh, on my short list at some point. I, I've been blessed, so I don't I don't say any of this trivially. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, I, I don't say any of this lightly. But I'm from you know my family is Swedish, so anytime we can go to Scandinavia, Sweden is is fantastic. I, I would love to step foot in Africa, and if there's some way I could do something, possibly in Johannesburg, uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, we've talked about Brazil more than once, uh, heading down to South America. So y- Europe and the U.S. and Japan are still, and Australia, are still kind of our, I'm hoping, Jamin, to get back to Australia in 2024. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'm be there because the one time that. you've come here was, <laughs> I was in New Zealand you when you came You couldn't come. Here. You were in New Zealand. Oh, the one <laughs> trip I've taken in the last few years happened right when you came. So, yeah. Oh. So, no, it, it really has been an amazing ride, and I look forward to getting back out there. Yeah. What are some of the particular challenges you deal with? And you're, you're talking about going to all these international locations. Um, you know, you have to get guests there. I know I know, not all of your events, you bring in special guests. Um, you, you just go to kind of tell the stories instead. But um, what are some of the unexpected challenges we might not think about that you deal with in doing all this? Well, I'll, I'll pick on Russia again, just in, and unfortunately, I don't see us going back to Russia anytime soon. Right? You know, bringing merch in is we we could not bring merchandise into Russia. We we mm-hmm. just chose not to. You know, I'm not doing anything you know secret or illegal or anything like that. You just don't want to raise a lot of eyebrows. So when you're going through customs and you've got 75 T-shirts, you know, in your suitcase, <laughs> you, you have to. Uh, plan accordingly. But we've, we have been so fortunate. I've never, Mexico, ironically, Mexico City, I did have a little bit of trouble. They were, they were trying to bust my chops on a projector. And they're like, yeah, you're trying to bring this projector in to sell it. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, look at it. It's been around the world. It's beat up in an old cardboard box. You've got to be kidding me. So, I mean, it was a 45 second conversation. It was not a big deal. 
if people think this is a first class experience <laughs> all the way through, it's not. Um, by the time we cover travel costs and studio costs and uh, uh, everything else, we, we really do it on the cheap as much as we can. But I do it because I love it. And it's, it's this crazy hobby that I never, ever would have thought I, I would have been able to do, much less enjoy. I mean, there's times, I mean, I went to Tokyo literally for a weekend and it, it was exhausting and it made no sense, but we had a great group there. And I think I was, my time, my body clock was upside down for about six days after I got home. But I really do love it. And just meeting people, uh, seeing the smiles, receiving the hugs, the whole thing, you know, t- tasting, you know, quote unquote, exotic foods or whatever. It's, it's just become part of what I love to do. Is it challenging balancing in the studio with MJ with your, you know, studio installation work that you do day to day? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, you know, People think, oh, Brad's some big shot producer. I'm not. Um, I, I work. <laughs> I work hard for a living. Um, yeah, we we build home theaters, we build music system, things like that. And uh, no, we we've kind of found a balance where I, I do both, and it does work. I mean, once in a while, a client might uh, contact me, and they have no idea that I'm in Osaka. But we just make it work. I wanted to say something too about this, you know, first class experience. You mentioned that just a little personal rant of mine in support of you, Brad, is <laughs> that I know some people gripe about the cost to go to the seminar. And I just want to say for the record, for anyone listening to this, I think what you do is so time intensive, so much effort goes into it, so much love goes into it. I know everyone, I know we want everything to always be inclusive and not everybody can always afford a ticket and that sucks. But I work in book publishing and book publishing, there are many, many, many weekend conferences that charge so much more than you do for (laughs) three full, like 12 hour packed days that are amazing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just think we get so much for our ticket price at your events. And I just have to say that because I, I hear some people gripe and I don't agree with them. And that is my public statement on the subject. I really feel every bit of effort you put into those events and think they're amazing. Yeah. Ticket price is a tough one because it, it's something that we don't take lightly, but uh, we, we do try to find the best venues that we can. And there's just, there's a lot of costs associated behind the scenes, everything from taking time off work to travel expenses to uh, studio rentals. And, you know, and, and this one, I hope I don't overstep my bounds, but I think we really do present a, an event that we've worked hard on. And it's an event that I'm proud of. And uh, I, I've had this conversation with, uh, you know, a handful of people that I, that I really trust and they, they'll say, no, it, it really is worth the price. And so, yeah, we do something that I, I like to think is, is a bit more exclusive and a bit more, I, I appreciate, you know, the hard earned money that, uh, that people do have to put down for a ticket. And, and I mean that, but we, we do the best we can to deliver a product, something that is far beyond, and, and I, I'm not trying to be 
offensive in any way, but, but it's way beyond a karaoke experience or, uh, or, or something where, you know, it, it's, it's not quite as real. We, we, we've really worked hard to build something that I'm very proud of. Speaking of that a little bit, who do you feel is your primary audience for the seminars? So I know you have a big following across social media. You do a ton on Facebook, on Instagram. I think you've been doing a lot of TikTok, which I don't follow as much myself. But come on, come come to the TikTok dark side. <laughs> I'm getting more and more scared of TikTok right now. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it about to be banned or something in America? I read in the news. Oh, the, the guy's being investigated. I don't know. It's like colleges here are banning it. Right, I don't right. know. The government um, has banned it. Yeah, it's going across the board. But anyway, but it can be a great platform. I know for for certain things. So there's that piece of it, which you know you do so much amazing storytelling today, Brad. You had just put a a great story, which I read very quickly about bubbles (laughs) and which I loved. But who who do you feel like, where do you kind of see that divide? Who's engaging with you on social media versus like actually showing up for the seminars? It's a good question. I got to think about that for a second. I mean, we really grew in the studio from MJ off of Facebook. And 10, 11 years ago, Facebook was really all we had. And I embraced it and ran with it. And I, I do love to write and that, that it, it became an outlet where I could sit down and write a story and, uh, you know, share some memories. And then we, you know, and then we invited people to our seminars. So Facebook is kind of where it started in terms of our target audience. I, I have no idea. We have guests of all ages, of all demographics, you know, most of our events are probably 80% female, 20 to 30% male, something like that. But it really does vary. I mean, in, in Japan, it's uh, 99% female, but, <laughs> but that's, you know, but it, but it varies from, from location to location. I guess my target audience, I mean, hardcore MJ fans are easy and, and don't take that the wrong way, but you know, they, they just want to be there. I love bringing people in that are maybe, you know, music students, recording students, um, people that don't really know what to expect. Those are, those are fun. And I like when those people kind of take that chance and come spend a day with us because, uh, they, they, they generally, it's generally very fulfilling for them. Brad, what, uh, what response do you get from the media? Um, I know as a longtime fan, I I want to hear more about MJ, uh, the artist. Uh, and unfortunately, we hear a lot about MJ, all the other stuff. I'm just curious, like, how do you promote this in the media or do you promote it in the media in order to highlight MJ, the artist, and also your seminars? I mean, it's funny because we, we've been talking about how times, you know, the times they are a change in. 10 years ago, we were actually like taking out <laughs> like newspaper ads or maybe not newspaper, but like, you know, if we were going to New York, we'd take an ad out like the village voice or something. And it never really materialized. It really never really turned into anything. So I don't know. I mean, if, if people find out that, uh, in Europe, um, I tend to do more radio interviews and I've done a couple TV interviews and things like that. The problem with that is, is if I'm, if my event is on a Saturday and Sunday and we do the radio interview on a Friday, 
it's really short notice for people to buy a ticket and jump in and do something. So I really don't pursue big media that much. Social media has been such a great pipeline for us to connect with people. So, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we do a little bit on Twitter, not much, but TikTok, we're having a lot of fun with. That's our main avenues. And then I do have my newsletter and I'm not as judicious with it as I should be, but we do try to send out newsletters just to let people know that, uh, hey, we're coming to these cities. Here's some little tidbits of news and things like that. And and we're going to try, <laughs> if Maddie's not here right now, but if she were here, she'd be uh, kicking me in the ankle. But we're going to try to start doing even a weekly newsletter, just a little, you know, hey, here's where we're at. Here's what's coming up. Great. You talked earlier about wanting to go to some different countries in Asia. When, when you do events where English is not the primary language, I mean, how does that even go? Do you have a translator on site? Yeah, um, those are hard because one, one thing I've learned, and I, I've been to Japan twice. We had some really great groups, great events, but it is hard it, well, I shouldn't say hard. It's just, it, it's more challenging to work with a translator. So yes, in Asia, you know, in the countries in Asia, we almost certainly need a translator. And I'm certainly not a great humorist by any means, but but humor is part of my event. And, you know, you when you try and use a little subtle humor in, in Japan, it, I mean, understandably, it just doesn't work. So <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, you know, and, and you kind of, you kind of need that audience, you know, laughter and response to mm. uh, make sure you're on the right track. In let's see, in Russia, we, yeah, we use translators quite a bit. Uh, in Asia, most European countries, it's not even, it doesn't even come up anymore. Yeah, uh, Europeans by you know learn learn English almost across the board. So. Uh, but yeah, if, you know, when we venture back into, into Asia, we will need translators again. In terms of running in the studio with MJ events, you obviously have a lot of wonderful volunteers who help make it happen as well in different places around the world. How does that actually work? Do you have like a dedicated team of people in each region or like more of a centralized group? Like how does that all function? <laughs> it's the most haphazard uh, ragtag group of uh Generally, in terms of volunteers, the, the way one of our events usually works is we, we need, you know, we need a couple anchor people. So I'm, I'm just going to make this up. But let's say that uh, a group in Budapest wants us to uh, to come out. So, you know, we, we kind of start the conversation and uh, try to find a venue. And uh, well, let, let me rephrase it. There's kind of two ways these things come about. One of them is what I'm describing, where a group reaches out to us, and we, you know, we we start coordinating with them. And with some of these, I mean, I've been back two, three, four times, and people just keep coming back, which is both humbling and amazing. And then there's others where we might decide, you know, we we have some people that are interested, and uh, it'll be enough that we'll go ahead and choose a city. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll just say London. Um, we always have a good group in London. And once once the wheels, you know, start rolling and we start uh, promoting, people will reach out to me and say, hey, if you need help, you know, I'd love to help out. 
And at this point, I mean, a lot of them I already know. You know, they've been to my events in L.A. or Cologne or different places. Now, the unfortunate thing is that some of that is going to have to change just a little bit uh, after Brussels. And uh, we will have to be a bit more, uh, we might have to bring in just a bit more, you know, professional type security for some of these events. But for the most part, we, we really do love our volunteers. And, uh, and we've, we've got a great group of volunteers that seem to step up uh, city after city after city. It, this I'll, I'll pre-warn you, it's a pretty direct question, but it's something I think our audience would, would like a sort of a direct answer on, actually. Now, obviously, you you feel it appropriate to play music that hasn't been officially released, or, or not even just music, but earlier versions of songs and stems and, and different things like that. So for those people who feel that straight up, you know, that's not right, or you shouldn't be doing that, how do you respond to people that have that opinion? you know, in the first place. Right. Um, I mean, over the past couple of months, I've learned that uh, uh, there, there, there is no right response for everybody. I, I do think hearing some of, some of Michael's ideas that are, you know, not fully finished, you know, is, is interesting uh, to, to who he was as an artist it's never been something that uh, it's kind of funny years ago, I'd have to go back through all my tickets and, uh, and look at the event. We did an event in LA and I don't know how we did this, but we called it demos and wine. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a wine tasting and just playing a bunch of unreleased stuff. And it was a dumb idea to be honest with you, but, uh, and it was not one of my favorite events, but subsequently since then, if, you know, I, I don't have, a, I really don't have a, a playlist, but if a song seems like it's going to fit in the moment and it might be something that, uh, you know, generates some interest and maybe some conversation, then yeah, I, I have, I have, there, there are certain things that I have played. It's never been the focus and it certainly is not going to be the focus moving forward. But I, but I think for, you know, at the right time and the, and the right place, it is something that I think people do enjoy. I was thinking the other day about, you know, what, what you do in terms of live seminars and then and what we do at the MJ cast with recorded podcasts. And I was thinking about what kind of crossover there is between what we both do. I don't know how you feel, but like when I am interviewing somebody where it's like we've got a set of questions or we know where the conversation wants to go, there is definitely a feeling of having a little bit more control over the direction of where you're going. I will say that the episode we did together with Brad Buxer and Matt Forger was, I'll never forget it. It was such a special moment for me because it was so, there was no set of, oh, we're going to talk about this, 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 this. When I spoke <laughs> to the three of you, because you all know each other so well and have so many shared experiences, it, it was a really interesting thing to try to steer because you guys were darting off in all kinds of directions around your experiences. <laughs> My apologies. No, it was great. <laughs> it, it was amazing. I, I loved every moment of it. And uh, I hope we get to do something again like that one day. When you do your seminars, I'd imagine it would be quite different having a panel of people there as opposed to you just telling your stories or maybe even just talking to one person. Right. What's it like in the moment when you've got a group of people talking? That's actually a very insightful question. So I've learned from experience 
having a panel is hard. I prefer to have a conversation with just one person. I mean, it's it's amazing that you're touching on this because I'm kind of planning L.A. right now and uh, how I'm going to handle L.A. this year. I go into every, I won't even call them an interview because that's kind of overstating it. It's really just a conversation. Mm -hmm. I go into every conversation with really with no notes. I mean, I might do, no, I'm going to be honest. I mean, really when Brad Buxer and I are going to do something together, I mean, Brad and I go back decades. Brad's like a rabbit. I mean, he'll just run across the field and I have to kind of (laughs) reel him in. But, you know, with him, I will say, okay, look, man, we want to touch on this and this and this and this. And I'll have just a couple bullet points that we're going to talk about, but I have no script. I'm trying to think of the last panel that I did probably would have been in LA. And it is, that's harder because, you know, different people are more, vocal than others. And so I I try to avoid panels as much as I can. And I really prefer a pretty unscripted conversation. Most of the time it works pretty well. So Brad, has there been some guests that you, you know, were your favorite guests or moments, uh, favorite moments with your guests? (laughs) When you say guests, you mean somebody that's up on the, up on the front with me or just somebody that's attending the event? Both. Okay. I mean, Buxer and I always have a blast. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's my brother from another mother. We, we really, really genuinely have fun together. And I, you know, at the risk of tooting my own horn, I'm kind of the one that brought Buxer into this. In other words, he, he's done some events on his own, and I think it's great. But um, his first event was with me, and, and there were <laughs> – I've told this story before – but there were a couple topics that he didn't want to talk about. And I, I remember this like yesterday. Uh, he didn't want to talk about Stranger in Moscow. And he didn't want to talk about Michael having pre-recorded vocals mm-hmm. when he said <laughs> when he sang live, because Buxer was neck deep in both of those. And so we we did, we talked about Stranger, and it was really good for Brad to talk about it. And for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, you know, get ready to throw your shoe at me. A lot of people know this story, but Michael did not give Brad proper credit for writing the music of Stranger in Moscow. In fact, he didn't give him any credit. And it was really hard for Brad to talk about that. And he and we we almost had like this little therapy session in front of a group of people. Mm. And, uh, and it was good for him. It was good for him to really tell his side of the story. And, uh, and it was, it was very memorable. And I don't know if it was at that same event or a different event. It might've been that same event in LA and, uh, his mom, Mrs. Buxer is sitting in the front row and she, ra- <laughs> she raises her hand and says, how come sometimes when I watch Michael Jackson sing on the history tour, it doesn't really seem like he's singing. It seems <laughs> like it's, it's, there's something odd about it. And I laughed so hard and I looked at Buxer and I said, if you want to lie to your mom, that's on you. But uh, <laughs> I would suggest you tell what's going on. And everybody knows that almost every artist out there uses pre-recorded vocals for some parts of their shows. 
as did Michael. And it's been good for Brad to kind of work through being able to tell these stories. They're fascinating stories. They're very insightful into learning about how Michael worked and how Michael thought. And for those of us that were kind of in the trenches, it's good to share these stories. In terms of my favorite guest, and and I've told this a hundred times and I'll probably never see this gentleman again, but we were in Toronto, Canada uh, several years ago. Toronto is just a fun city. I I love doing events in Toronto. And uh, there was a, a, a young girl I mean, you know, young compared to me, probably in her early twenties. And she was so excited. She came in, she came through the door, literally just beaming, smiling. She was so excited. And she was almost dragging her boyfriend with her. You know, I, I went up and I, I try to greet everybody as much as I can when they come in and she, Oh, Brad, I'm so excited to meet you. You know, this is my birthday gift. And my boyfriend bought me a ticket to your event. Cause he knows how much I love Michael. And I looked at this guy and I could tell he wanted to be anywhere except in that room. <laughs> he, he was not into it. You know, I shook his hand and, and, you know, and he, he wasn't mean or anything, but I could just tell he was doing this for her. And I said, so I pulled him aside and I said, look, I I know that you don't know what you're walking into. I I said, it's not going to be weird. It's not, we're not going to light candles and sit in a circle and cry (laughs) over Michael. (laughs) I'm like, just take, take the, take the, the guard down just a little bit and give me just one hour, just take a deep breath and give me one hour. So he did. And at the end of that day, and I don't want to exaggerate. I, I actually think he lifted me up. He gave me such a tight hug. Oh. And he said, that was fantastic. I had no idea what this was. And I'm so glad I was here. I'm so glad I brought my girlfriend. And he's just, he's been my favorite guest. I, I can't even picture him anymore. But it was so meaningful that it's like, okay, this guy took a chance. And our events are not weird. They're not strange. So he, he's my favorite uh, ticketed guest. That's great. I really love that. Yeah. When you were talking before about Brad Buxer and his um, request for the topic of lip syncing to not be discussed, it made me think about a show I think you did in Cologne and our um, co-host, Charlie Thompson, was actually at that particular one. Mm-hmm. And I think Brad Buxer was there. And over the years, Charlie has told me that there was a, a kind of a, a bit of an, an announcement or preface or something at the start of that particular seminar where you or Brad or somebody said that we'll talk about lots of things, but the one thing we're not going to talk about is lip syncing. <laughs> and it... It actually made me wonder, like, why Why do you think – I understand the Stranger in Moscow thing completely, like why that would have been a difficult thing for, for Brad to, to process and discuss publicly. Why lip-syncing? Like, why do you think he in particular may not have wanted to talk about that? Because it, it wouldn't have been much later where we had him on – episode 100 of the MJ cast where he was totally cool to talk about all that. That is so funny. Um, I wonder why then he wasn't, but soon after he was, maybe you'd broken the seal in a way. And <laughs> I mean, it, you know, back in the day, we, you know, we did have to sign, you know, a lot of agreements and, uh, and over time that stuff just kind of, you know, fades away. I don't know. It was to me, it was so, I, I've always, I mean, I, 
and I'm not tooting my own horn, but I did the, the prep for the tours and I, I'm the one that put the vocals in and I, and I had a very specific conversation with Michael. I said, look, man, let me get you, you know, a cheap microphone, an SM58 or something and put you into a garage and just re-sing the songs, just, you know, sing them at the top of your lungs. No, no, no. I don't want to do that. You know, that that's, I want the, the fans to hear the songs, how we recorded it in the studio. And there's a lot of artists that do what I just described. They'll re-sing their songs, you know, in a live setting and then record that. And that'll be their, you know, their, their lip syncing. And with Buxer, it was, it was his job. I mean, he was right there, you know, 15 feet behind Michael during the shows. And Michael would have a little hand signal that he would throw at Buxer. And that would be the cue that, hey, I'm going to stop singing. You know, go ahead and bring in the uh, pre-recorded vocal. And yeah, Buxer just did not want to talk about it. He, he was so protective. And I'm like, everybody on the planet can see that Michael is not singing these songs live. And that's okay. Michael's putting on a great show. I, I totally support the concept. But don't, don't be so afraid to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, two questions on that because you've just you've said a couple of things that have made me think. Wow, okay, I got to ask. So you said before that in the day you had to sign documents and that kind of thing. So are you saying that Michael requested that any like people involved in the tour don't discuss the lip syncing aspect? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And that interests me because obviously Michael was an incredible live singer. And, and I've never been able to solve this mystery. I do not understand it. But let's take MJ and Friends, for example, a show he did in 1999. He did it in Germany and Korea, the charity show. There is footage of him rehearsing hours before the real show on stage, singing She's Out of My Life, pitch perfect, beautifully, just amazing, live. Mm-hmm. And then the real show happens. He doesn't include the song for whatever reason but then lip syncs the whole thing. And it's like, why Why do that? Why do it? You sound amazing. Same as MTV 95. The rehearsal footage of, of that has him singing Rock With You, pitch perfect, beautifully, just like he did over a decade earlier. But lip syncs a 10, 15-minute segment. I don't get it. I mean, I understand the laryngitis and stuff on the history tour was a big deal. There's so many other smaller, shorter TV performances that he gave where he lip synced, where it's like, why? Why did you do that? You sing so beautifully. Yeah. Um, I don't have an answer. You, that might be one you want to ask Buxer, but Michael wanted every performance to be uh, visually and sonically perfect. Mm. And he really... I'm not sure I'll use the word crutch, but he he really got used to having pre-recorded vocals, you know, just a finger snap away. And I agree. I mean, I like when singers, you know, even if they're off pitch a little bit, but there's an energy, a live dynamic that supersedes pitch perfect. I agree, but I don't have, I, I, I'm not going to try and speak for Michael. Uh, of course, it's it's one of the big mysteries, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to belabor the point because I've spoken about this on the MJ cast before because I, I really enjoyed Michael. 
live vocals. And so it, it really is it's hard to watch those shows or watch any performances where he, he lip syncs. I, I kind of go back to the, I think it's the, the Royal Concert in Brunei where he was, you get the little clip of him singing Earth Song. Uh, and I can play that on the loop over and over again, <laughs> just because I absolutely, I've, I've always been a fan of Michael the Artist, Michael's voice from Little Michael to Puberty Michael to, you know, Gambling Huff Michael to Off to Wall Thriller Michael, all those different phases of Michael's voice. And so it's just a shame that we never got that Michael in the microphone. I always envision right. that tour, Michael in the microphone. <laughs> it, it's funny because I, um, I don't want to get in trouble with my girls, but they're going to the the Taylor Swift show in a few weeks. And I, I saw her last show and, and it was, it, it was amazing. Um, it was on a technical level. It was just spectacular. The difference is I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get some hate over this, but Taylor, Taylor's a, a, a good singer, a good, uh, yeah, she, she puts on a good show, but you know, I said to my girls that the problem is Michael could sit on a bale of hay yep. and <laughs> have one, you know, one guitar player yep. and people would be absolutely mesmerized. And, and that, that's not to put Taylor down. I, I guess it does. Her by herself doesn't really do a lot for me, but, I, but I'm not a, I'm not a young girl, but Michael by himself to hear Michael just sing or beatbox by himself was magical. So yes, I agree with you to have a, you know, to have a Michael unplugs uh, type show, I think would have been just insane, but he, that, that was not the direction he was going to go. Yeah. So, so Brad, with that being said, let's talk a little bit about MJ and your, your, you know, after 10 years of storytelling, uh, what's your favorite moment with Michael? What, what still resonates with you about your time with him? Uh, it's a good question. That was, that was, that was out of, that was out of left field. Um, there was one night when it was during the dangerous album, we, we called it the decade project, but during the dangerous album and it was late, it, it was probably 10, 10 30 at night, something like that. And I know people think that, oh, these crazy rock and rollers, you know, they work 24 hours a day. We really didn't. I mean, we worked uh, from about 12 noon. Uh, I mean, I'd be at the, studio, at the studio usually around 9.30, something like that. And we'd push until about 8.30, 9 o'clock, something like that. And then, you know, Bruce would start folding up his, he carried a briefcase. <laughs> he was, you know, almost like an insurance salesman. He'd walk out with a briefcase. You know, he'd be, you know, closing his briefcase and uh, heading out. And Michael asked me to stay. And it was, you know, sometimes it would be me, sometimes it would be Matt Forger. And he might have a song idea and he wanted to keep working. I'll, I'll kind of, I'm going to keep it a little bit vague, but it, it was on one particular night when, uh, when he asked me to stay. And I was, and we had Michael Boddicker was still there. And I asked Michael if he could stay. Michael Boddicker was a synth uh, programmer that, that worked on a lot of our projects. And, you know, it, it's the end of the day and you're tired, but I don't know. I probably went back and made another pot of coffee and we start working on a brand new song. And Michael is singing this brand new song, just a cappella in the room. And uh, Michael Boddicker starts programming it. 
and it's hard to, and it's just the three of us and it's hard to, you know, the lights are dim and, you know, the console is all lit up and everything about it. Just on the one hand, your body is tired. On the other hand, your brain is telling you, do you understand what's happening? You're here watching Michael Jackson create a song and you take another sip of coffee and you, uh, you just savor those moments. So that's the type of thing that, that I dearly miss. And I was privileged, whether it was with, you know, Quincy and Bruce and Rod and Jerry Hay and the whole gang watching Michael create in those circumstances was great, but bringing it down to a smaller group where it's just three of us, and uh, and Bill Betrell and Michael and I had had a handful of those experiences. Those are some of my favorite moments. So, Brad, I I've, I don't know if you recall this in our conversations that we had two years ago, but I'm going to ask you again. Being so close to Michael in the studio, um, especially during the Dangerous and History uh, albums, obviously there was a lot going on in Michael's life, um, and I know you can't you know speak for him, but you know. Can you talk a little bit about when Michael was in the studio, what he was feeling or what you thought he was feeling when he was singing certain songs? You know, what what was the motivation, especially with the History album? There's a lot of angst and a lot of anger in places in that album. Can you talk a little bit about how he felt and, and what he put into those recordings? So my answer is probably going to frustrate you. <laughs> I, I know the answer already, but, but I'm just going to push, push anyway. <laughs> we really, and I, I swear this is true. We, we really didn't talk about it. Michael would, you know, be, we'd be working on a song, you know, like uh, money or DS or, you know, some of the, you know, they don't care about us. And, you know, he's just, he, he's basically just being a goofball. I mean, he's beatboxing, he's tapping his pencil, he's uh, eating popcorn, whatever. And then he would go out and drop these really hard lyrics and then come back in. Or, or, or he might disappear to his lounge. But I can't speak for Brad Buxer. I can't speak for uh, Bruce or some of the other people involved. But we really didn't have these, these, uh, hard conversations. Oh man, you know, that DS, you know, you're really kind of, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're really going for it hard. And I don't think he wanted us to, he, he kept bringing us back project after project. Not that it was silly time and, and, uh, it wasn't all about jokes and, uh, and chicken wings, but, <laughs> but it was, it was us and he was very comfortable with us and there really wasn't a great need to dissect the lyrics, at least for me, Brad Buxer might have a slightly different answer. And, and I'm always honest. Brad Buxer was remarkably close to Michael, but in terms of me, that that's not why I was there. I, I wasn't there to, uh, you know, sit and have these uh, chin stroking conversations about, about heavy lyrics. And, and the reason why I ask is obviously as a longtime fan, I'm, I'm, when I listen to Michael, I'm always listening for obviously, you know, the feeling in what he's singing and, and listen to how he he's hitting certain notes. I, I recently watched a YouTube video, a gentleman, he's a vocal coach. I think his name is Chris 
Lipe, and I may be pronouncing yeah, yeah, it. I've, yeah, I've seen a couple of his videos. Yeah. yeah, he did one recently. I think it was last week on Who Is It? And I swear I listened to it like three times in a row. I was at the gym and I just kept playing it over and over again. But just the way that he broke down how Michael, you know, hit certain words and the feeling that he put into singing that song. And I I can't listen to that song, you know, the same again, just in terms of how he broke that down. And so that's the reason why I asked that question in terms of, you know, when he was behind the microphone in the studio, did you get a sense of this is why he's singing this song or he's putting this much energy because of this that's going on in his life. I mean, in terms of the second half of that question, I I know you may not believe me, but no, I mean, I really didn't in all honesty, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to uh, the tabloids, the, the allegations. It, it just, we, number one, I didn't believe any of it. And number two, it just wasn't, it, it, wasn't appropriate to really spend a lot of time on and, and certainly not, not talk about in terms of his vocals. It's, it's funny. I mean, I was, I, I watched a little thing on U2 today and, and, and I like U2. I'm not like their biggest fan, but, but I like them, but you hear a Bono vocal and it's a Bono vocal. It's a very characteristic vocal and it's like, Oh, yep, that's Bono. And Michael, he had so many vocal sounds at his disposal. I mean, when you listen to who is it uh, and then you listen to dirty Diana or give in to me or earth song and the range and the things he could do with his vocals. And I'm not, I'm not comparing Michael to Bono necessarily, but, but Bono's got his sweet spot. Michael had like 10 sweet spots. Mm. Yeah. And, And he could, he could just kind of, he knew how to make his voice sound to make a song pop. And it's, it's a pretty remarkable, almost otherworldly gift. And that's what that YouTube video did for me. It just reaffirmed that Michael, and, and this guy really breaks down how Michael uses his breath, um, right. you know, in, inhale, exhale, how to, to make certain sounds, how he emphasized, you know, how he's gritty one moment and then can actually just kind of mellow out for the rest of the note. It's just an awesome video. Um, and I'm always singing Michael songs around the house. And my wife always asks me, like, why are you emphasizing this note? Like, because that's what he does. He's emphasizing <laughs> this word and this note. Uh, and this guy did it brilliantly. So I, I'm always intrigued. And so that's why I'm asking you that question, because you were right there. Uh, and you could hear and you could see you're, he's right in front of you uh, doing it. Yeah, well, you take you, you take who is it, or um, or even the low notes on Liberian Girl, and he's just he's got that big, yeah. fat, almost yeah. baritone voice that, and and then you you uh, compare that to like Butterflies, yes, and um, and I didn't work on Butterflies, unfortunately, but but that falsetto that he could hit, yeah, he he had a range, and not just a range, but just different tonal sounds. That was just amazing. Brad, when Michael was in the studio working with you, did he have technical knowledge around equipment such that he would ask like, okay, I'm going to be singing in this kind of way, so therefore maybe this kind of microphone or equipment would be best for it? Or did did he leave that completely up to you guys to determine? 
Yeah, it's a, that's actually a good question. Um, the answer is he was <laughs> he was he was not very technical. He he really trusted the engineer to choose the right microphone, but he now things like reverb he was very tuned in on, and he loved you know we, we would do several minutes when when someone like Michael is out in the studio behind the mic they're singing and as they're singing, they have to hear themselves in the headphones. And so part of the engineer's job is not only to, you know, equalize and compress the vocal. So it sounds as natural and good as possible, but also to add some reverb and you, you may not be as tuned into reverb as I am, but I can hear it, you know, from the moment a song starts, you know, the echo, whatever you want to call it. And Michael would, you know, he would talk about more reverb, less reverb. And because that's what he's hearing in his, in his headphones. And even though we're not recording the reverb, and I don't want to get too technical and uh, abstract, but we're letting him hear reverb. We may not use that reverb in the end, but we want his, the vocals that he's hearing in his headphones to be as perfect as possible and he was really good at, you know, I want a little more reverb, a little more snare drum, a little, a little less bass. Michael never asked for anything to be a little bit less. He always wanted more. <laughs> you know, in terms of did he understand one compressor versus another or one tape machine versus another? Probably not. Um, he, he wasn't that tuned into the technical side, but he enjoyed hearing the differences. Got it. And you obviously also did a lot of work with Michael at Neverland, setting up speaker systems and all kinds of amazing things there. Did you ever have a moment at Neverland with Michael where it was a bit of like a quiet moment or a bit of downtime where you could just enjoy what you had set up and hear from him what he thought about it? Oh, man. Um, there, there was one. The answer is yes. And again, I have to be so careful. I don't want people to think, you know, oh, Brad's just bragging or whatever. That's, that is not the intent of this. But I was very, there were very few people that, um, how do I say this? Michael was very compartmentalized, meaning Bruce Wadeen is his engineer. David Williams is his rhythm guitar player. Uh, Steve Picaro writes great songs like Human Nature. And they don't really leave that compartment in Michael's brain. And for whatever reason, I was able to be in a few different compartments. I was able to work with him on the albums. I was able to work with him on tour prep. I was able to, uh, he asked me to come up to the ranch and start building music systems. And I worked with him uh, for music on, uh, on some of the short films. So that in itself was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly proud of that. Most people kind of stayed within their, their one compartment. And, uh, and that's just how Michael's brain works in terms of quiet times with Michael. It's like a, it's like a, like a bedtime story. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Neverland was, it's such a hard place to describe, but Neverland at night was was like no place you've ever been. Um, just walking through there when the park was lit up and the music was playing and everything was just firing on all cylinders. Um, it really was a very, very magical place. So 
the one that pops into my mind in front of Michael's house, there was this lake and I think it was a man-made lake. There's no <laughs> California doesn't have lakes except for now. Um, there's a lot of rain, but he had this, this lake in front of his house and we put a bunch of speakers around it. Uh, these they're called rock speakers and we didn't do anything halfway. I mean, if we're going to do it, um, we put a lot of speakers and a lot of amplifiers so he literally had this lake that was just surrounded by music. And when I guess maybe lake is too big a word, but it was like a pond. And uh, I mean, it would probably take you 10 minutes to walk around it, something like that. And it sounded amazing. We were playing the music that he selected, uh, you know, Debussy and uh, Sound of Music and, and his playlist. And he and I were out walking and I said, come on, I want you to hear this. And we walked around the whole lake just with the music playing and just chatting. I don't remember what we were talking about, but uh, just the two of us out walking. And it, it got to a song. I think it was Evening of a Fawn by Debussy. And it's got this just beautiful orchestral uh, section. And I don't want this to sound strange, but I'm just going to tell you as I remember it. Um, Michael stopped talking. And we both stopped and he, he closed his eyes and he was just listening to the music. And as he was listening, he stretched out his arms over his head and it's as if he got taller. <laughs> he was, he's about three inches shorter than I am, but he just, he was standing on his toes and just stretched his arms out as far as they would go. And he just let out this, this shriek and he was laughing and just let out this exuberant yell of how happy he was at that moment. And, uh, and in a way it was kind of a, a nod of gratitude to me. And, um, if you didn't know Michael, you'd be a little, <laughs> you'd be a little, what's going on here. <laughs> this is getting kind of weird. Um, uh, <laughs> but it was just his way of, taking in that moment and uh and it's a moment i'll never forget that's really special thank you brad brad i wanted to note too just because of this beautiful beautiful story um it reminds me of some of the stories and also images you share like during the neverland focused day you do as part of the seminar which if, if you guys haven't attended that is awesome thank and you. I was wondering, in relation to that, do you happen to have any insights into what's going on at Neverland these days? There's been a lot of what? speculation with Ron Burkle <laughs> owning it. Do you have any insight or information you know about or would be willing to share by chance? I mean, I, I'm only going to repeat what uh, Big Al Scanlon, uh, Big Al was just the sweetest guy on the planet. Uh, Al was at Neverland for years and years and uh did uh, think he was in charge of park operations and uh al i, I drag in that i drag al into any one of my events when he's available just because he's such a great guy so al has told me and i'm only saying it because he said it in a public setting at my event that yeah ron burkle has you know obviously owns neverland uh, ron has a very good relationship with the family and you may not know this, and forgive me, I don't know Ron's son's name, but uh, Ron's son actually lives at Neverland with his family, 
and he was when when uh, when the son was was younger, he you know he was actually one of the guests at Neverland, and then hmm. the Burkle family I think would uh, would spend time up there. So he kind of you know grew up with Michael, and he knew what Neverland was and what it was like. So there, to the best of my knowledge, they are bringing. Uh, the rides back they're they're grooming the place they're bringing it uh, kind of up to you know what it you know similar to what it was before and i you know and i think it's going to be a place that he's going to let the family use i think use it for special events i know people always ask you know is it going to be a, a public place where the fans could go and and that's that's really unlikely and, and i don't mean to to be the wet blanket but it's just people that have been there understand what I'm about to say. It's just, it's difficult for a lot of traffic and it's, you know, it's private property. It's probably not going to turn into a Graceland, you know, in, in the near future, but I do appreciate that they are bringing it back and I hope it's going to be part of the, uh, the biopic that the estate is working on. So yeah, from what I understand of all the people that could have purchased it, um, having Ron Burkle at the helm, I think is, is, is a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it sounds like. That's, that is reassuring to hear from you as well via, via Al Scanlon, who has of course <laughs> been on the show and is such a great guy. Al is great. So Brad, how do you personally see your role related to MJ's legacy? Wow. That's a heavy one. <laughs> I come with the heavy hitters, Brad. I come with them. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what the MJ Goss is here for. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I I was I was at the right place at the right time. I I genuinely think about Michael on a daily basis. The the emotions and uh, the memories that I've gone through um, since two thousand and nine, and and even before then. It's, it's, uh, I'm repeating myself, but I was, I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. One of the things that sparked this whole journey, and it's funny because I'm looking at it across the room right now, is an episode of the Rolling Stone magazine after Michael passed. And, um, and there, there's just some unfortunate things that were written about Michael, you know, during his life and after his life. And uh, even today I touched on it just a little bit when I wrote an article about bubbles and I never really set out, you know, Hey, let me do these seminars for the next 10 years. Um, th that was not the goal at all, but people were interested in hearing about the real Michael over time. I've, I've done the best I can to get people away from the, you know, I'm just going to be blunt, but the the uh, nonsensical accusations, the elephant man bones, the hyperbaric chamber, all this craziness, and I've tried to introduce them to the Michael that I knew and uh, and the Michael that I loved, and this just incredibly unique guy that. Uh, for whatever reason, befriended me and I befriended him. And I always make it clear, man, we were not best friends. We were not confidants. We didn't run around to clubs together. We just had a huge respect for each other. And if I can convey that to the groups that uh, want to spend the day with me, um, that's what I try to do. 
And going forward, you know, yes, you know, am I working on a book? Yes. Am I working on some live streams? Yes. Do we have a couple other ideas that we're we're looking at? Yes. So in terms of, you know, me being a big part of his legacy, that's uh that that's probably not something that I'm I'm thinking of. But in my own way, I love to introduce people to Michael and uh just give them a glimpse of of what it was like to see him work. And, and that's what I appreciate about the work that you are doing, Brad. Um, I mentioned it before, and I think we on the MJ cast probably all agree that we want to focus more on Michael as an artist and what he was capable of doing, you know, in the studio, his performance. And, um, you know, I think you do a phenomenal job of, of preserving that part of his legacy. Thank you. Brad, we're going to wrap up fairly soon, but um, I wonder, you know, since we've got you telling a few just really fantastic stories, you're such a good storyteller, clearly from your, you know, wonderful personal experiences and also honed from this decade of, of <laughs> telling stories to fans, which is a whole craft in itself. We could talk for another hour about probably just that process. And I wondered though, if you could just kind of leave us with a little one kind of more little snippet of just a unique moment with Michael. And we were kind of chatting before recording and you had mentioned a few little choice possibilities. And uh, I was curious about if you could maybe tell us a little snippet of a story about setting up a dance studio you mentioned for Michael at, you did one at Havenhurst, you did one at Trump Tower. I'm really curious about those history recording years or time. Uh, could you speak to setting up his dance studio in Trump Tower by chance? <laughs> sure. So, you know, whenever, whenever it's so funny in the US or maybe around the world, you know, you, you, you say the word Trump and, you know, you get different reactions, but, uh, um, but Michael and, and, uh, and Donald were friends and, and whatever people think of that, they can think of it. But, uh, uh, Michael did have, uh, if you go to Trump tower on the very top floor and I forget how tall Trump tower is with 77 floors or whatever it is, I'm sure I'm wrong, but on the top is uh, there's two penthouses and one of them, uh, is Donald's and, uh, and I don't know who, who was supposed to be in the other one, but all of a sudden, uh, we're working at hit factory this is 1994. We were all staying at what was then called the Helmsley Palace. And it was uh, Madison Avenue and 50th, I think it was. And uh, now I think it's just called the New York Palace or something. Um, but, it, you know, it was, it, it was, it was pretty posh for 1980, 1994. And Michael and his security team were, and Bill Bray and everybody were up in the the suites up above and, and me and Andrew and Buxer and kind of the, uh, you know, the rest of us were down in, in normal rooms. There were still beautiful rooms, but, uh, uh it was just these bunch of ragtag guys that thought they were cool and rock and rollers that were in this old lady hotel in, uh, in midtown Manhattan. Well, Michael, all of a sudden, somehow or other, this penthouse at Trump tower opened up. And I don't know the backstory at all, but Michael moved out of of the uh, Helmsley and moved over to Trump. And then he talked to me in the studio and he said, hey, I really need a dance studio where I can practice. And I said, okay. So we, we got a pair of Westlake speakers. I think they were BBSM 12s or BBSM 15s, something like that. 
they're huge. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're just, it, this is not some little home speaker. I mean, it, it is a big, substantial speaker. So I went up to the suite and, uh, and somebody had already installed the dance floor. I didn't do that. But we brought these speakers, and uh, and it was it was a friend of mine by the name of Jan Vitrovsky. <laughs> I'm sure he remembers this story. And uh, Jan and I brought these massive speakers up to the top of Trump Tower, and then a big uh, I don't know, couple amplifiers and CD player, DAT machine, the whole thing. And we set them up. It was so stupid. You, you guys think that it's a well-oiled machine. It's not. I mean, it's just real people doing the best they can. We set these speakers up like on coffee tables in, right in front of the dance floor. I don't know if you're familiar with Trump Tower, but it has all these windows that are at 90 degree angles. So anywhere you are in the tower, you can look out and basically have a 180 degree view of the city. It's a remarkable design. It's actually really cool. So Jan and I had these speakers, and I'm going to guess they were 250 pounds a piece, something like that. And they're on this these, these coffee tables. And I don't know if the table broke, but something went horribly wrong. And Michael wasn't there. But the speaker just starts falling right towards the glass. And it hit the window. And I'm thinking, we're about to kill five people. The speaker is going to go crashing through the window and <laughs> flying down through, you know, into a taxi on, uh, on uh, Fifth Avenue or something. And, and thankfully, uh, Trump Tower is built in such a way that it can handle a 250-pound speaker crashing into it without breaking. But yeah, we, uh, we built this crazy system for them. And it was just thunderously loud. I, I've built a few systems for Michael like that. But yeah, we built a full, uh, I'll call it a dance studio playback monster system on the top of Trump Tower for uh, for Michael. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that is that is wild. And, you know, I love your comment too, that it was, you know, it was like, just like you guys, like humans doing this, right? It's such a whole lifetime of these iconic moments and these humongous productions. And it was, it was you guys there like on the ground doing your thing with your talents and your passions, making this stuff happen. Well, r- roll the clock back to, and I'm sorry if I'm going over time, but no. uh, forgive me, I'm being really stupid, but when did bad come out? Was it the fall of 87? 87. Yeah. Yes. So just before it came out, and good grief, back then I was tw- 24 years old. I'm giving away my age, but um, I was born in 63, 73, 83. Yeah, I'm like 23. Yeah, I was probably 23. I'm a kid, a, a, a kid. Uh, CBS Epic wanted to have this playback party at the Beverly Hills Hotel for the entire global community of Epic Records vice presidents and staff. So they booked out this huge ballroom at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and nobody wanted to go. And finally, Michael and Bruce came to me and said, Braddy Daddy, you're, you're going to go do the playback party. <laughs> I'm, I'm 23. I'm, I'm, I'm younger than kids that are working at Dairy Queen. And I'm like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah. And I had to haul these giant speakers over to the Beverly Hills Hotel and a digital tape machine. And I think we had a mixer or something. And it was just me. Nobody wanted to go. 
And I don't know if Yetnikov was there. I'm sure he was. I mean, everybody was at this party. And and I walked in. I had my little Acura. And I drove, I drove the master tape of the Bad Album over to the hotel. And I did have a couple techs working with me that helped set everything up. And my instructions were to play it one time. I played the entire album one time. And then I hit rewind on the tape and I put the tape under my arm. And I mean, all these guys, you know, the president of Epic Music Argentina and the president of Epic Music Spain and the president of Epic Music, they're all coming up to me. Hey, you know, how about you give me that tape? Hey, you know, how about, uh, and it was all just in good fun. But yeah, it was that kind of stuff where you would think that it was like this well, and it was well oiled. We were professionals. But they're literally sending a master of the album master of, I mean, it was a, it was a backup, but uh, yeah, it was that kind of stuff that we would just do. Michael kept the circle really tight and he did not want, you know, people that he didn't know walking around with his master tapes. So that's how these opportunities just kept coming and coming and coming. Yeah. That's so cool. I love it. I have to go back to one thing real quick, just a very small point, but it's on my mind. I can't let it go. So Trump, as most of us know, will just said a few hours ago on his social media platform that he's expecting to be arrested in a couple of days. So he, Trump is on my mind. From your perspective, given what we just chatted about, you know, there's always this speculation going back and forth. Like, how close were Michael and Donald during the history recordings? Did you really have a sense of of that in any real clear way? Man, I feel like there's a big political landmine right in front of me. <laughs> Sorry, I, sure had to, I had to do it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I never. I'm I'm trying to remember. I I I never met. I never met Donald. I was at Trump. I was at the Tower a handful of times. Um, you know, Donald never came to the studio, to the best of my knowledge. Um, but no, I I think they I think they did have a. A, a casual friendship and I'm, I, I don't, you know, it was a different time, different place. I don't, I don't specifically judge that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I'll throw you, I'll throw you a softball, uh, Brad. Okay. <laughs> uh, during the history session, Lenny Kravitz has told a story that uh, he and Prince came to the studio to mess with Michael. Do you recall that visit? Um, I was actually on a flight with Lenny Kravitz one time, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, I I don't I wasn't in the room when that happened, but it seems to me Matt Forger and I I think Matt mentioned something about that. I think Prince did pop in. I mean Prince certainly came during the bad project, but uh yeah, I th- I think Lenny and, and Prince did pop in, but I was not there that day. Okay. So I, I can't give you a first hand account. Gotcha. I mean, having said that I don't, I do not want to get myself in the trouble, but those studios were extremely secure. Mm -hmm. And anyone who says, yeah, I was working in the room next door and I popped in on Michael. I'm, I'm gonna roll my eyes just a little bit (laughs) because I mean, we changed the locks, we changed everything. And uh, especially at the hit factory. I mean, honestly, every, every studio I worked in with Michael, we knew who was coming in there. There really wasn't, you know, Hey, look who's here. I mean, it, it, it was not 
that easy. So it's possible that, uh, you know, I mean, Prince is Prince, not, nothing but respect, but he, they would still kind of have to, the receptionist is not just going to buzz the door open because it's Prince. It's okay. just not, it's just not going to happen. Gotcha. Brad, this has been so, so great. I mean, we have gotten the full range. We, again, thank you for talking about the theft and just addressing that. You've answered a lot of critical questions for fans. We've talked about the logistics of this amazing seminar you've run for over a decade, which I hope any of you who have not been to get the chance to go to. And um, and you've given us some amazing MJ stories too. Yeah. We've gotten everything <laughs> today and just really so appreciate it. So you know, I'd like though to, before we do wrap up, to talk just a little bit about your plans for these coming couple of years for the seminar. Um, you are booking events. If you could tell us a little bit more about that. And also I'd like to know, we didn't get into this too much earlier other than talking about like more security. Are you doing a real like reset on the whole seminar or what's your approach to future events? All right, well, that's a lot of a lot of a lot of questions in one, but uh, I'll take the last one first. Are, are we doing a reset? The answer is, I mean, it's funny because Maddie and I, you know, she she pretty much knows my my repertoire inside and out. I, I almost have enough material, and, and again, this is not to brag, but I could almost do like three seminars. And I've kind of kicked around the idea of, you know, doing like option A, option B, option C. We're not going to do that. But really, no two of my events are alike. Um, they're similar, but I mix things up. I'll do a different song here. I'll do something different there. And it really is kind of how I'm feeling and what I feel like talking about. So, yes, we are doing, I'll call it a significant rebuild, you know, maybe not a huge rebuild, there, there's just a few songs I haven't talked about in a long time. And uh, we're going to be dropping those in and, and probably, you know, phasing a couple of things out for a little while. There's also some stories that I just can't get rid of. You know, there's there's the, the story that we do about Keep the Faith. It's just, it, it's one of my favorite stories. And it just doesn't make sense to uh, just change everything for the sake of change. Mm. But, you know, there are certain things that are going to stay and certain things I'm going to be phasing in, phasing out. So I don't know if that's the right, you know, in terms of, oh, gee, you know, Brad, some of Brad's stuff was, uh, and I don't even like the word leaked. The word is stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of our stuff was stolen. And it was. That doesn't mean that we don't talk about it anymore. I, I think just seeing some of that footage without the backstory is just incomplete and it is some beautiful footage that I think needs, you know, the full story to, to really let people appreciate it the way it was intended. So, yeah. So some of that stuff we're going to maybe change a little bit, but a lot of it's going to stay and some other songs I've talked about many, many times. Yeah. I'm probably going to pull them back and, and bring some new ones in. Michael had a huge library, so I think we have room for some some changes. And I think you might find that a lot of a lot of fans, or at least a lot of the fans I've spoken to, out of principle, aren't even watching the stuff that got stolen. They're not they're not engaging with it, out of respect for you and for Michael and the whole thing. So I think you might find that a, a significant percentage of people coming to your new seminars probably won't even have seen that stuff anyway. Yeah, I. I do agree, and I'll even take it a step further and say that a good number of our guests 
and I'll say this delicately, but you know, they're not really the 24 hour a day diehard MJ fans. Mm. And, uh, they're, you know, a lot of them are music students. A lot of them are, uh, recording students. A lot of them are just, just love music. And, and what I found is that, uh, a lot of this, you know, stolen material, you have to kind of dig a little bit to find it. And, and which I just don't have any interest in doing. So people that just love Michael, they don't really spend 24 hours a day on the internet, like doing crazy searches and digging down rabbit holes. And they just love his music. And those are really, really fun guests. I'm so hesitant and forgive me, but you know, people have asked me, you know, is it, is it okay if I watch, is it okay if I watch some of these videos? I don't have an answer. You know, I'm, I'm all about context and hearing a story and seeing a video that puts it in the context just seems so much more sensible to me than uh, kind of digging down rabbit holes and watching stuff on your phone. But, you know, everybody has their own uh, kind of their, you know, what, whatever they think is right or wrong. That's, I guess that's up to them. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and I want to point out too that for me, the seminars are absolutely not about hearing, you know, certain songs. It's about the stories and about the experiences and about the magic you create in the room. And also about seeing the people I consider my MJ family. It's so, I mean, I arrive at your events and it's like a little reunion. I just, it's so warm. All your volunteers at LA events are who I count as really dear friends now are so incredible and I just hug everybody and it's, I am, it's the happiest I am all year, honestly, is walking into that first day of your seminar. So that doesn't exist on YouTube. That doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists at the events you create. Well, yeah, thank you. That, that means a lot. And, and what you just said, I I would almost turn it in reverse order. Um, It really is the community that, uh, that I love and, uh, and, and yeah, we, we've worked hard. We work hard behind the scenes to make our events as, uh, as special as they can be. But when I started doing these, I, I, I didn't know MJ fans. I, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I, I knew about Michael and I knew about how to make records, but I didn't know the impact these lyrics had on people and, uh, the, the importance that Michael is to, you know, millions and millions of people, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a studio rat. You know, I, I, uh, the only Michael I knew was on the other side of the glass, you know, singing smooth criminal and man in the mirror and give in to me. So it's been, it's been fascinating for me to meet people and see these communities. And, and I've joked many times that, you know, the first time two people meet at one of my events and wind up getting married, I'm going to volunteer to be the DJ at their wedding. <laughs> um, and, and so, so far it hasn't happened, but, uh, but I love the community and, and that's the part of it that I just never could have anticipated that, uh, you know, when I'm done at the end of the day and I go back to the hotel and, and just fall into my bed and I find out that people are out having dinner and going to clubs and, and just, you know, kind of uh, decompressing from the whole day as a group, that means so much to me. 
And mm. even though I may not participate because I'm, <laughs> I'm a wet blanket by then, but for them, <laughs> it, it really, it, it means a lot that it has become just a beautiful community. Mm-hmm. Well said. Totally agree. Um, so is there anything you can say then about the upcoming dates that are scheduled yes. for this year? Can you share that info? Yes, yes, yes. So I'm opening up my calendar. Right now, coming up, we do have Atlanta and New York. Uh, those are going April 29th in Atlanta and May 20th in New York. And what I'm going to try to do, have you guys seen MJ the Musical yet or any of you? I haven't. I think Sean did. I just saw it um, last month. Oh, did you with Miles? Uh, no, it was a, the, a different gentleman. Um, okay. I'm drawing a blank on his name, but uh, back in January, uh, my wife uh, was my Christmas gift. Nice. And, yes. And so um, we went and we saw it and it was absolutely outstanding. It's amazing. It, it is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I saw it a year ago and uh, with Miles and now I think Miles, I think is stepping down yeah. at the end of this yes. month. So we're going to go try and catch it um, before my show, probably on May 18th or 19th or something like that. And might even try and do a little, not a group that, that does, that just doesn't work, but we'll do something where we'll just tell people, Hey, we're going to be there. If you want to buy your own ticket, uh, knock yourself out. So then we're going to head to uh, Berlin in early June. By the time this airs, I'll probably have tickets on sale for that. And uh, same thing with LA. We'll be in LA June uh, 23rd and 24th. Um, I'll have tickets up for that. Then end of July, we're going to be going back to Amsterdam. And I've got just a fantastic group in Amsterdam that um, this will probably be our third or fourth trip back there. It's just a fun, fun city. And then coming up, you know, I, I, I got to be careful. I don't want to get myself into trouble, but uh, I'll probably go. We were looking at Munich in August. I was going to do Munich in September, but they told me that's a terrible idea because of Oktoberfest. <laughs> right. And then we'll be back in London in October and uh, probably Ireland in November. Wow, wow, you've got a full lineup. I love it. And st- and we're looking at going back to Stockholm in December. Great. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's great people. Um, and again, I, I work for a living, and and uh, you know, so there's only so many days I can, even if they're just long weekends, I, I have to choose really carefully when and where to go. I, I've got a group in Toronto that I wanted to try and get to this year. I'd love to, we were supposed to go to Minneapolis and I put that on hold for now. I've got to get back to Detroit. So yeah, we're, we're very blessed. I'm very grateful. And we're going to get through this little bump in the road and uh, get back into the studio. Well, Brad, I was going to say, you're going to get yourself in trouble if you don't mention Detroit. So uh, Detroit is, <laughs> it's on my list. It's on my, I promise. Offline, you and I will have a conversation and uh, uh I'm down. I'm okay. Yes, uh, I, I right. yes, I, I do owe you guys. No, no, I no, I, I would love to come back to Detroit. I, I yes. lived in Michigan when I was a kid, you know. So, is that uh, right? Yeah, a little town called Muskegon. Yes, on the, the west side of the spot state, on the road. Yeah. So all, all I remember is being so cold I couldn't even breathe. So now, <laughs> so now I live in in Orlando. Yes. Well, well, we there's a lot of great MJ fans here. It's a large fan base. So. Uh, we will pack it out. Um, so that, again, let's talk offline. Let's do it. All right. All right. 
And uh, Brad, where can people find you if you can give your social media handles and your website info so they can get all this info for themselves and buy tickets? Sure. Uh, tickets are at in the studio with MJ.com. And then uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, just type in in the studio with MJ and, uh, and you should find us. I don't do much on Twitter. I, I need to spend a bit more time on Twitter, but. Uh, no, just stay away from Twitter. We're yeah, done. Just done. <laughs> <laughs> um, Twitter just never made any sense to me. It's, it's, it's got its own little uh, niche. And it, but it's funny. I mean, whenever I do an event, um, I, I try to ask people how they found out about it. And uh, Facebook is kind of my old faithful. Uh, we've got a lot of Instagram followers and TikTok. We're growing. Um, we're creeping up on 10,000 on TikTok. So that's kind of fun. Cool. And then for a while we did a podcast. I, I, I never, I never reached anywhere near the numbers that you guys do. It's a lot of work, man. I commend you because <laughs> it's, it's just a lot of work. And uh, so we, we got really good feedback from it. And then our YouTube channel, same thing in the studio with MJ you know, I've got ideas and things I want to do, but then all of a sudden you look at the clock and there's only 24 hours in a day. So you just have to pick and choose. Do you think you would ever bring back the podcast? I would love to. Um, we got really good feedback from it and, uh, it just, I, I've got a couple different ideas with it, but it's just time. And, uh, but, but I do love kind of this long format. Um, that's why Instagram drives me. It drives my girls crazy because <laughs> I, I tell longer stories. I write longer stories and on in, and Twitter doesn't work for me at all, but on Instagram, you know, you only have, you have to like break it up into three or four parts. And, uh, but yeah, all that said, I do love the podcast was fun and I, I need to, uh, to resurrect it and our live streams. Uh, I won't bore you with too many details, but we did live streams on Facebook for about two years and it was, it really worked well, but Facebook has discontinued them. They're not going to do them anymore. And we had a lot of people that said, oh, I hate Facebook, do it somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. So we are going to launch them on Vimeo. So oh, we're, okay. Okay. we're ironing out the, uh, just yesterday I had a, uh, not that anyone cares, but, uh, I, I had a long chat with Vimeo about how to uh, do a few things. So th those are fun. I, I do love the podcast. I mean, the, uh, the live streams, we, we do one that we call Mickey, Michael and martinis <laughs> where, uh, it's just a bunch of trivia. And, uh, and then I, I sit and drink a martini and, or I have a, you know, I might have Jared with me or somebody and we'll both just sit and sip on martinis <laughs> and it's so much fun. So we're, we're going to try and get one of those under our belt in the next uh, two months or so. Cool. Yeah. I, I saw a couple of your live streams. Those were great. I really enjoyed oh, thank them. You. Thank yes. you. And don't forget, you can uh, grab some in the studio with MJ merch on our website in the studio with MJ.com. Um, I think there's a pull down on there that says merch and uh, we've got kind of some fun, some fun shirts and uh, uh, always appreciate uh, when you guys support us. And actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Brad, because I did not realize you had merch on your website. I always buy the merch package at your seminars. Every time you put do great shirts and just great all kinds of little goodies, but didn't know they were on your website. So thank you for that. And there's actually a lot more choices on the website. Um, you know, people always ask, you know, can we have like female cut shirts and things like that? Mm -hmm. And we just, we, 
we just can't haul that much stuff with us. But we've got uh, a lot of really fun designs on the website that uh, we just can't bring with us uh, to every event. Very, very good to know. And that kind of brings us full circle in this conversation because we started this chat talking about how to support artists and content creators. And I think we agreed it all came down to merch, <laughs> merch purchases. <laughs> so <Correct>. here we <laughs> are. <laughs> So yeah, so Brad, thank you so much again. This has just been really, really a special conversation. We love having you on the show anytime. Thank you. Thank you for all you do for the community. Hey, seriously, thank thank you guys for your time. Um, this has been uh, a, a challenging beginning to the new year for us, but uh, uh, the support that we've received from the MJ cast, from my amazing social media followers and uh and just just friends and family, it really means a lot. So we are so happy to be coming back and hope that you'll consider joining us in one of our upcoming events. So thank you, Elise, Sean, and Jamin. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to talking to each of you soon. Awesome. And uh, before we do wrap up, Sean, can you let us know where people can find you if they want to connect? Absolutely. Um, I'm on Facebook, Sean Shackelford. Um, I'm also actually I'm the administrator of two Jackson um, Facebook groups, uh, the Jackson Music Club and Thank God for the Jacksons. I'm also on Twitter, S-A-S-H-A-C-K-E-L-F-O-R-D. And then I'm on Instagram, Sean.Shackleford. Awesome. So as for the, the MJ cast, we are across social media. You can find us at the MJ cast on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. You can also go to the MJcast.com. And now we are also on Mastodon. Uh, Jamin is primarily our Mastodon warrior because I'm still figuring hey. it out. But <laughs> over on Mastodon, we're at, at the MJ cast at Mastodon.social. Hmm. And we're doing a lot over there and really doing that a little more than Twitter these days. So let's see how that all that pans out in this new world. Um, but please feel free to engage with us. Also, don't forget to check out our shop. It's up there on Redbubble. At the, if you look up the MJCast or you can link through our website, the MJCast.com. There's a link that says shop. You can find our fun merch all designed by Jamin with our podcast logo and other fun stuff. If you do feel inclined to throw us a few bucks, which again, we always appreciate you can go to the mjcast.com slash support and it will take you right to our PayPal link. And as for me, you can find me across social media on every platform at Elise Capron, just one word, pretty much everywhere trying to do Mastodon. I have no idea what my handle is on there, but it's uh, mentioned on our uh, MJCast page. So you can find them again, still, still figuring that platform out, but always happy to hear from you guys. And Jamin, where can they find you? Oh, well, um, I am on a bunch of social media places. I just never go there anymore. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I've deleted both of those apps from my phone. (laughs) They just take up too much of my time. (laughs) However, I am on Mastodon and I'm using that heaps at the moment. So I'm at Jamin Bull at mastodon.social. Talking a lot about Michael on there and different stuff if you want to follow me. Cool. You're also always welcome to email us at the MJCast at iCloud.com. Um, if you write us, we appreciate every email we get. I know sometimes we are a little slow getting back. It's really just Jamin and I who are checking the emails. So if we don't get back to you right away and it's something urgent, please feel free to ping us. But we see your notes. We so appreciate them. We also really do appreciate feedback sincerely. So let us know what you think. Engage, po- post a comment on the website, whatever works for you. It's helpful for 
us to hear. Otherwise, I mean, this has been like an amazing conversation, an amazing start to season nine of our show. And I just can't wait to do more this year and uh, can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. So welcome to season nine and stay bad. (laughs) Keep Michaeling. Keep the faith. Oh, keep keep the the faith. faith. I love it. 